This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. What is nuclear power? So, um, make it simple. Um, if you take nucleus, uh, um, basically mass converted into energy, if you think of it, um, generally what we call nuclear power is what we call fission. So you've got two types. You've got fission, where you split the atom, and fusion, where you combine the atom. Now, modern nuclear plants work on a fission principle, but as I told you before, I worked on a fusion plant. It's a bit different. Fission, generally, you've got uranium, okay, and it's got an unstable core. So in any atom, you've got protons, you've got electrons, and you have neutrons. And when there's too many neutrons in a particular atom or in a lump of atoms or in a gram, its core becomes unstable and it wants to split. And when it splits, part of the mass is converted to energy, which is Einstein's law of E equals mc squared. So E energy, m is mass, so and c is the speed of light squared. And generally speaking, from mass, you convert it to energy. right? And that energy is used to generate electricity. Now, how does it work? Well, nuclear plants, I, I'm not going to overcomplicate it tonight, but they work like kettles, like coal plants. So how does a coal power station work? You've got coal that you're burning in a, in a, in a furnace or in a, a boiler. And that's basically boiling water. And it's ultimately the water, the steam, that is turning a turbine, and that makes electricity. So as opposed to using coal, we use uranium. So it's the same principle. It's just a, a kettle. It's a massive kettle, but as opposed to running on coal as the fuel source, it's got uranium or thorium, which is a different type of fuel. Most nuclear reactors across the world are what we call pressure water reactors. It's a very simple concept. We've got uranium, which is running in the, in the coal. It boils the water. That you've got a little bit two different types. You've got a boiling water reactor and a pressure water reactor. So the boiling water reactor, it heats the water and it converts the steam directly. Okay. The pressure water reactor has got what we call a primary loop. That's water under pressure. And then that primary loop goes through what we call a heat exchange. We call that the Rankine cycle. And it's basically water heating another pipe. And that other pipe will convert to steam and that turns the turbine. And that's just to make sure the secondary loop does not get contaminated radioactively. But it's the same principle. It heats water to make steam to run a turbine. That's what we call a traditional pressure water reactor. It's the same reactor that's used in the submarine. Okay. And that's nuclear power was applied to submarines first, and then we put a submarine on the land, basically. So that's the, the that's most reactors in the world. Then Canada has got a specific one. India's got it now as well. They call the Kandu reactor. That's a heavy water reactor. Heavy water is what we call deuterium. It's a water that has got one extra neutron in. And the advantage of that reactor is you don't have to enrich uranium. You just, because the water's already got um, extra neutrons in it, basically. So th th there's nuances to it, but it works on the same principle as well. Eventually, you've got a heat source that's going to heat another water source that's going to spin a turbine. And that's how most of the pressure water reactors work at the moment. There are more advanced reactors that work on different principles, like the pebble bed and the molten salt reactors. But generally speaking, if we South Africa is going to buy a reactor tomorrow, it will be a standard pressure water reactor. It's just a kettle, basically. Well, what is Kuberg? What, are, what type Kuberg's of nuclear power water, is that? It's a standard pressure water reactor. It was built by the French. Um, you see, France in the 1970s, I think they bought a reactor designed from America, and they made all the reactors the same, which is basically a pressure water reactor. There's very little difference between the French reactors. And the reason for that was they believe if you standardize something, it's like a car. You build 10 of them, the price comes down, and it's very easy to build. That's the French um, uh, way of doing it. America's got different type of reactors, um, but they're all based on pressure water principles, I believe. They, I think they've got one heavy water. But generally speaking, um, 
Kubek is pretty sure bought there, and I think Chernobyl was as well, if I remember correctly, and uh, Fukushima as well. Um, they've got they had different safety systems in the past, but nowadays they're more standardized as well. Take me through what happened to both of those because those are obviously very big events. So basically, the, the biggest risk in a pressure water reactor, if you think of it, you've got water under pressure. Now, that water, when it's under high pressure, can convert into hydrogen, and that can cause an explosion. And that is a big risk. And then when the hydrogen, the water drains, the core is not being cooled down, because the purpose of the water is to contain the reaction, to cool down the core. And that's what we call a loss of coolant accident, loca event, basically. And uh, if the water goes away, and there's no backup, uh, the core burns through. The reaction doesn't stop. And that's basically what happened at Fukushima. Um, that is more or less, I believe, what happened in Chernobyl as well. Chernobyl was a bit different. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I know there was more explosions and then more direct contamination of the population. Um, but generally speaking, that is the biggest risk in a nuclear plant, is that if there's a loss of a water, um, a loss of coolant accident, uh, you're, in a big, you're in a big problem. You need to get water in to cool the core, or you just need to let it burn out. Okay, that which is what Japan eventually did, um, but yeah, that's why they, that's why uh, um, that's more or less what went wrong with those things. Because of what happened to both of those, you have this mass fear, this uh, paranoia. Fukushima, for example, wasn't actually its own doing. There was a huge tsunami that hit it. Uh, people yeah. often forget that, but what happened at Chernobyl was man-made, not so. It, it was. Um, so Chernobyl's an older design, as I believe they didn't have a proper containment. So when we build nuclear plants today, we have a very thick concrete wall, and some of them have two concrete walls, basically. And uh, Chernobyl didn't have that. So when there was an explosion, the whole population was exposed, the whole area was exposed to it. Um, Fukushima, correct, tsunami that killed people. Um, but of course, there was uh, error in the reactor as well. There was a loss of coolant accident, and that's why the reactor didn't stop working. Now, um, you speak about the fear a little bit, and that's maybe where we should get into it. If you look at the actual deaths at Chernobyl and Fukushima, Chernobyl, I think it's 33 deaths, and the UN might say it's 55, okay, more or less. 55 out of a population of 200,000 people is not a lot. Uh, Fukushima, thus far, nobody has died. Japan has got a law that says if anyone is, can prove he's died of radiation or being, he's got cancer from radiation, the re Japanese government will reimburse them. Thus far, one guy has managed to prove it. And it wasn't even clear from him. So maybe you can say one guy at, at Fukushima, you know, if, you, if you're really technical, but I, I, I still say zero, it doesn't matter. It's a very low number of the whole population who's ever going to die of radiation. So um, what we have is a media-driven fear of radiation. And it's totally disproportionate to the risk. The people who died at Chernobyl, must take into account, they were what we call liquidators. So the Soviet Union mobilized a lot of men. I forgot the number now, but it's 10 to 100,000 of men to help clean up. And only something like 33 out of them died. And they got direct exposure from the radiation. The others did not. So what we argue in, uh, what many people in the nuclear industry is arguing is that our safety towards radiation, our fear of it is disproportionate from the risk. Very similar to COVID. You remember every virus is dangerous. And at the end of the day, most of us had natural immunity and some didn't even believe there was a virus. And you remember the whole debate, okay? Radiation is very similar. There's a certain level of radiation that is clearly dangerous. Okay, you're basically going to burn, you're going to have radiation poisoning. It's highly dangerous. But then there's a certain level that's very low. Okay, And that low level is where the debate is at the moment. How low can you go, basically? And how much exposure can you have? And if you take just Chernobyl, which is 
the worst nuclear accident in human history, you find out that the um, animals at Chernobyl, so after humans evacuated, the animals started growing in numbers. And you have to ask what happened. Okay, why is it that so many animals have grown? Um, why is it that they're overpopulating the area? If radiation is said to be dangerous, clearly humans were more dangerous to animals than radiation. And that is where a lot of scientists came to question what was called the linear no threshold model of radiation. The idea that there's no safety threshold. There's other anomalies like this in the world as well. So you take Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, which were atomic bomb tests. The fallout is very similar to what happened at Chernobyl. It's, you know, the, the bomb killed, I think, 100,000 people is the official number. But there's people living there today. And we now have long-term medical data going back uh, three, genera going three generations almost, showing no genetic deformities, okay? And we, we're showing, um, you know, that even the, even the people who are exposed to radiation within a certain perimeter have less cancer than the lower than the overall population. And that is what is now called radiation or mesis, that a certain dosage of radiation might even be beneficial to you. We're also seeing it in, in uh, Fukushima. There's people who didn't leave the evacuated zone. They refused to go. They seem to be fine. The health, the health statistics and vital statistics seem to be pretty much in norm or actually better than the general population. Now, it's difficult to conclude if it's better or not because... Is it just that they're more optimistic people because they've survived the tragedy? You know, things of that, all those questions that you had with COVID come into place. I don't really want to go there. Um, but the French, um, I just want to get the right name of the association. So in France, in 2006, they did a study on this. And it was the, um, so it's the Académie des Sciences, um, the French, uh, in Académie Nationale de Médecine, so the French National Medicine Academy, and the French Academy of Science. And they said, um, they look at, at populations exposed to radiation throughout the world. Utah and America is another one. And they came to the conclude below 100 millisieverts, which is 10 times what we consider safe, they could find no statistically significant effect of cancer, okay, or genetic deformities or stuff. But their conclusion was very interesting. Their conclusion said, if it exists, it is so small that it's within the noise. So it might or it might not exist, but we just can't measure it, right? Which is a way of covering themselves, I think, just politically. But what we now know is that our radiation safety standards have been far too strict in the past. Now, that's not an excuse to not build a containment um, you know, structure at a nuclear plant. But this is an argument to say in case of an accident, like say Fukushima happens tomorrow, say in Cape Town, we don't have to panic, right? You don't have to evacuate the entire city. You might have to evacuate the small perimeter of people just for a short time, where you give people a choice or things of that sort. And therefore your risk come into proportion and then your insurance costs come down and all the costs of nuclear come into proportion again. Explain to me as if I'm a 10 year old, how does this whole reactor thing work? Why is it so dangerous? Well, that's the, the interesting question. So basically in a reactor, mass is converted to energy, right? So that's radio, radioactivity. And if you have a high dosage of energy, it's like putting your finger into the plugs, basically. That energy is going to kill you, right? That is what the danger is about. So radioactivity is just energy in a certain sense. Yes, you've got alpha, beta, gamma waves, and they have different effects on the body and all these things. But by and large, it's energy being released. And you need to not be exposed to a high dose of energy. You should not step in the fire either, right? It's a very similar principle. You should just stay away to a safety range of the fire. It's the same argument about the about a nuclear thing. There are things that can go wrong, high doses of radiation that can kill you, but 
if your safety systems are in check and um, you know monitored and audited and things of that sort, you don't have anything to worry about. I mean, a car can also kill you, right? It's very mm. dangerous to go 120 kilometers an hour if you crash. But we have safety systems and brakes and things of that sort in a car to prevent that. And we accept with cars, there's a certain amount of deaths every year that's going to go. Nuclear, we actually accept zero deaths. So we have imposed very strict uh, regulations on the nuclear industry to prevent those type of things. You mentioned animals flourishing in Chernobyl. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure there are people also living there. Yeah, and, and, and there's another area in the world called Ramsar, Iran, which I was in last year. And Ramsar is where the Shah had its holiday palace. It's, it's all green. Uh, there's women tanning on the beach. Um, the background radiation is 250 millisieverts, something like three to four times higher than Chernobyl. And the people there are growing narki or clementine trees. And I ate some of the fruit there. And they seem to be fine. And it's luxuriously green. So the level of radiation we're saying is dangerous, complete nonsense. That's what I'm saying. And there's a beach in, in Brazil where people are swimming. They're tanning on the radiation. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, w w so would you walk through Chernobyl? Yeah, I, I would go there on holiday. I think it's probably good for you because if you're in, well, it's like going to the Kruger Park because, you know, it's good for your soul. But um, <laughs> generally speaking, <laughs> generally speaking, nothing will happen to you. I mean, there's people, there, there are mushrooms in Europe being sold that have got Chernobyl, uh, um, still radiation from Chernobyl. The reindeer meat in Sweden, I think, is still radioactive from Chernobyl. Very low dosages. Like I'm talking about micro, if not picto dosages, right? And people are eating it and they're fine. Nothing's happening to them. There's baby I mean, milk, I think, in Utah, which had cesium in, and babies seem to be fine. The, the Mormons are very healthy people, you know. So it depends on level. That's the point about it. Hugo, where do these myths and misconceptions come from, then? So radiation is an interesting one because up until the Second World War, we accepted the threshold model. Uh, the atomic bomb was created this way. The first nuclear reactors was built this way. And then McCarthyism really started this. Uh, Joseph McCarthy attacked many of the scientists who worked on the atomic bombs. And they scared in America the living hell out of people for nuclear winter. You know, the Soviets have got so many more weapons than we do and things of that sort. And that Cold War propaganda infiltrated the civilian nuclear as well. And they kept on piling regulation after regulation in the United States, and particularly following the 73 oil crisis. They came up with what was called ALARA, as low as reasonably acceptable or always reasonably achievable standards. So the idea was, we're going to eliminate every radiation until you can't measure it anymore. And that was the safety regime opposed upon the nuclear industry. Now, there's good evidence, um, you know, uh, by people like Dr. Edward Calabrese at the University of Amherst to show that the oil industry was heavily invested in the propaganda and in, the sa in lobbying for the safety of nuclear radiation. Because if you look at the amount of energy per kilogram, nuclear in solid fuel state at the moment competes with oil. Right. So it was a direct competitor of the oil industry. And what do you want to do? You want to create black propaganda against your competitor, as if the oil industry doesn't kill people, as if there wasn't a big oil spill in BP and it killed the whales and killed the, those things. Those things are all acceptable. Yet nuclear's deaths are so tiny, including Chernobyl and Fukushima. You know, even if you put it on a graph, it's low, less than wind and solar. More people fall off ladders every, every year installing wind turbines than nuclear's ever killed. Right. But yet, there's a disproportionate propaganda targeting the nuclear industry. There is definitely a type of anti-nuclear campaigning that has been going on for years that has embedded mm -hmm. this unbridled fear 
in people because another comment that you will hear, and I'm sure you'll agree, is that, okay, sure, it's safe now, but what if? Yeah. What if what is my question? Because if another Fukushima occurs, we know we don't need to react like that anymore. It's going to be safer. We now know of the. We know what killed people at Fukushima was the evacuation, the fear, and at Chernobyl, by the way, more people died of fear than radiation at Chernobyl during the evacuation. The best work on, on Chernobyl I can advise is Dr. Alas Shapiro, Shapiro. She was a nurse at Chernobyl, and she showed clearly that people died of, of fear, like COVID. You know, COVID killed people. The fear killed old people. That's my belief in COVID. So fear is a, is definitely immunosuppressive and it definitely kills people. But if you look at it rationally, um, those arguments are bunk. What happened with nuclear and the activists, it's very interesting because of this model of LNT, linear no threshold, that no dosage, even no tiny atom is ever safe. They, it created what was called LNT activists. It's green environmentalists who are like dedicating their entire life against nuclear. And you can read the website Counterpunch. They're full of them. So that's the anti-nuclear website. And everything the nuclear industry does is evil. You know, it created a hatred against an industry, which is the weirdest thing ever. It was partially funded by the oil industry, but that's too simplistic. It, it, it created, it, it fell in line with the environmental revolution and the Earth Day people. Remember, the first Greenpeace protest was against the hydrogen bomb. It wasn't against oil and gas, right? Patrick uh, Moore, we, you've had on, would, would tell you about this. He was completely radicalized against the nuclear industry. So it was the first hatred of the environmental movement. Um, and it's, it's a religion of sorts because... I've spoken to these environmentalists. I've spoken to the head of Earth Life Africa, for example, who is a nice guy, you know, face to face, but he believes in the purity of nature, that any contamination would create this dirty nature. You know, you, 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 you're changing something that should not be changed from its pure state. That's a religious statement. And nuclear sort of defies it. But if you think of it, actually, the, the misconception is that he makes the assumption that nuclear is something that's new to this world. When actually, if you take back life on Earth, like with those carbon graphs, you will see nuclear radiation was much higher when life developed. It was much higher in the past. So you, life developed with radiation. It's not something alien to this world. And it's being interpreted through by the environmentalists as if radiation is something dirty, as if you're contaminated. I mean, you've probably heard that. There's no such thing as radioactive contamination. If you're radioactive, you cannot become more radioactive. You become less because it decays. Uh, we are exposed to radiation every day. Your kitchen is radioactive. South African cement has fly ash from coal that is radioactive. Wi-Fi is radioactive. You know, you, you, you and I are, are receiving radio uh, radioactivity uh, from our uh, from our computers. When you go into the sun, you get UV radiation. Okay, so you're exposed to radiation on a daily basis. It's part of life, and humans have the ability to adapt to radiation in our environment, like we can adapt to viruses and bacteria, and all kinds of toxins. Right? If you need to be exposed to them. So that is the misconception. that it's, It starts from the theory that there is a pure state of nature and humans have contaminated it through our influence. And radiation is seen as the ultimate evil. It's even worse than the oil industry to some of these people. The irony, though, is that if you were to take a green position you know, and adopt mm -hmm. the idea that CO2 is a dangerous evil... Nuclear actually doesn't emit CO2. Yeah, and there's now a big divide in the environmental movement among this. Look at the guys like Michael Schellenberger. He's sold on the climate story, 
but he's in favor of nuclear because he's looked at the facts and he's realized France, which is, I think it's 80, 90% nuclear power, has one sixth of the CO2 emissions than Germany has, which is solar and wind. Sweden is one of the cleanest countries. Greta Thunberg's country has got 40, 50% of nuclear and the rest from hydro, very small renewables. Canada, where Justin Trudeau is from, I looked the other day, most of the, its power comes from hydro. They're lucky because they have the water. And then 15% nuclear. And solar and wind is a small percentage of Canada. So all these so-called green countries actually have nuclear in their back door. South Korea is 30%. Okay, it's not, they're generally not on board of that. A lot of Finland, which is also a very green and nuclear country, I think 40% of its energy comes from nuclear at the moment. So you, you find this weird thing where the countries yes. who are the most virtuous about being green and who can brag about the low carbon emissions. I mean, Sweden was the first country in the world with a carbon tax. It was purely symbolic because they already had nuclear power. Right? There was nothing to tax. It was just, we're going to do it. Right? This is the weirdest thing. So you have this, this strange thing happening where the people who are actually in favor of the environment, who are anti-nuclear, rely on nuclear energy. The most anti-nuclear people in South Africa come from Cape Town. But Cape Town's power is mostly from Kuberg power station. That's nuclear. So if you were a greenie, you actually should support nuclear. Absolutely. If you, if you care about carbon dioxide, it's the most obvious solution. But you see, here's the contradiction that they don't want to live with. If the world were to replace theoretically the fossil fuels of nuclear, which is feasible, but it will take time. I'm not uh, telling it's going to happen tomorrow. It will take a century to phase it over or phase it in. It means that we don't have to sacrifice our standards of living. And the problem with a certain element within the environmental movement has always been that they see the Industrial Revolution as mankind's original sin. Remember, they say 1.5 degrees since 1850. Why 1850? That's where human beings started industrializing. That's when coal was started being used on an industrial scale in England. So the, 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 the hatred is against the Industrial Revolution. And the fear they have, I think, which they, they won't open up to, is that we can continue to grow our economies. We can continue to go to the moon and to Mars and to exploit the Earth, if you will, or to use the, the materials for our own benefits if we go over to nuclear power. But look at what ideology is being promoted. It's degrowth. It's anti-industrial revolution. So the industrial revolution is seen as the original sin. And you cannot square that belief. If you believe in nuclear power, you still believe in development. You still believe in upliftment and in, in, in all those, the, those things that has helped humanity since, was it 150 years from now, from now on? Um, and, and that is where I think the, the, the environmental movement has a big problem because nuclear challenges their core beliefs. It solves the carbon problem without destroying the industrial revolution. And it's ultimately my belief that the industrial revolution is what they hate. Talk to me about costs. Everybody always argues that nuclear is very expensive. It's only expensive in the United States. The United States is three times more expensive than in uh, South Korea, Russia, and China. France is about 60% of uh, the US. It's still a bit expensive, but the costs have come down in France. Um, so there's two ways to judge nuclear power the cost. One is net present value. So that's the amount of money I'd pay today. And generally speaking, if we were to buy from China, from Russia, or from South Korea tomorrow, or South Africa, and I'm neutral with any of those countries, we would pay about two to $3,000 per kilowatt okay, of electricity. So a nuclear plant is, I think it's one gigawatt. So you take that 2,000 times a million, so it's 2 billion, 20 billion, or something like that, I think it was, 20 or 30 billion. More or less, that's the upfront cost paid back over its lifetime. So it sounds like a lot, but it's paid back over its lifetime. The plant pays for itself. 
The other way of judging is what they call the LCOE, the levelized cost of electricity. And that's a very big debate because the theory is that the plant has to spend all its electricity throughout its lifetime. And if you use, don't use something, that's a waste. And they, depends what number you come in America, it's $125 per megawatt hour, which is very expensive, three times more expensive than gas, for example. But if you look at China and South Korea, it's about 40, 50 sometimes. And if it is paid off the capital expenditure, even the United States is 30, which is very affordable. So the most affordable power in America at the moment is an existing nuclear plant of which the loan has been paid off. So the big idea, the big challenge is getting that loan paid off. Um, if, so if you build it yourself, the biggest risk of failure is during construction. The first five years, you can lose a lot of money, and that's why projects go over budget. Now, if you look at the two projects they always cite, or the three projects they cite, it's expensive. It's Vogdal plant in the United States, it's Inkley Point in the UK, and it's Finland's Ukaitu, uh, I think, and Francis Flamanville. So it's four of them. All those projects, they started building at the top again because there was political interference to try and get the cost down. You need to build at least three plants to get the cost at the bottom of the S-curve. That's if you're building it, okay? If you're buying it, it's entirely different. So Dubai is buying nuclear power from South Korea. The South Korean says, this is our price. The buyer said, we agree on that price. And if it goes over price, it's your problem. It's not my problem. That's how Kuburg was built. That's why South Africa, nuclear power in South Africa is the most affordable. So you can argue maybe the French you know, had to pay, use another account to pay for the nuclear plant. That's not our problem. We agreed on that price. And that is the price that they would build in if they had max capacity. So if South Africa were to buy, and I, I'm actually in favor of South Korea because it's a non-aligned country, it would be... I think if we would pay back the tariff, it would be something like one rand fifty for ten to twenty years, and then afterwards it would be forty, thirty to forty cents a kilowatt, a kilowatt hour, which is the most affordable electricity in South Africa. If you look at ESCOM's balance sheet, our utility, nuclear power is the most affordable in South Africa. And what you need to do, look at when you compare it to renewables is always look at life cycle. Renewables is twenty years, wind and solar, fifteen to twenty years. Some say you can get it twenty-five. Okay, fine. Nuclear sixty years. At 40 years in nuclear, you need to do an upgrade like Kuberg is now doing, a steam generator usually, although that's now been fixed with engineering. It might not be a future issue. But either way, even that upgrade pays for itself over the lifetime of the project. So um, you're comparing a 60-year project against a 40-year project. So the argument of wind and solar has to be you have to rebuild it every time. Does that sound sustainable? To me, it sounds you know, quite unsustainable to rebuild your infrastructure every 20 years. And renewables are also not reliable. It depends. So obviously they sun and wind weather dependent. The argument of renewables is you can use a correct combination of wind and solar. Well, that, that, that assumes you're going to have wind at night. You don't always. And then they say you can just put it in a battery and batteries are still very expensive. Right. But the argument I'm making is what we call base load capacity. There's a certain minimum load in South Africa that's always necessary to prevent load shedding, for example. And nuclear is always on. It can actually follow the load, okay? It's, it's, France has been doing it for a long time, and so did Germany when, before they shut down their plants. But generally speaking, nuclear is what we call base load. It's always on. It's the minimum for any country. And then on top of that, you've got the peaks. And maybe you can use different technologies for the peaks. That's a debate. How does nuclear then compare to coal? Um, so if you take coal in South Africa, it's still the most, uh, I think coal, if you would build a new one and integrate it, and assuming it's not another Madupi and Kusili project goes overboard, would theoretically be affordable. But coal's got the same issue. We have to build a lot of plants before the price is down. So South Africa have to build three to four coal power plants. Um, 
that's the, the, the that's the one issue of it. However, you do have advanced coal reactors nowadays that they call heli coal that has more efficiency. It's more efficient, I think, than existing nuclear plants. Not a lot, but it's a more efficient. Although you have more advanced nuclear reactors that might be more efficient than that, so that still has to be built. Um, the issue with the big issue in South Africa is this geography. So if you look at coal, um, our coal power stations are in the high felt. They are generally air cooled. Uh, there's not a lot of water in inland in South Africa, but there's water around the coast. So nuclear with pressure water reactors is ideal for the coast. If we're going to place nuclear in the inland, we first have to develop the so-called pebble bed reactor or the molten salt reactors. Generally, South Africa is in favor of pebble bed uh, before we can do that. So in the meanwhile, in, in, in the short term, Okay, when I short term say 10, 20 years, South Africa will still be burning coal in the inland. We can't wish that away. But my argument has been, let's place nuclear around the coast. Because if we do that, first you have desalination of seawater. Look at Cape Town almost running out of water 2018, and so was, um, what's it, Nelson Mandela Bay? They almost ran out of it. So nuclear can solve desalination issues. And when you do that, you allow your inland rivers to recover. And then you might have more water for industrialization, industrial applications, because you know, need both electricity and water for economic growth. So nuclear complements that process very well. We haven't touched on waste. It's another big one that often comes up. Yeah. So um, the thing of waste that they will always cite is the Americans. America puts their waste on the building site, and it's very close to their population centers, and that puts people in a panic. The United States has not built a waste depository yet. There was there were plans to build one in Yucca Mountain, which I believe is in Nevada, the ideal place because it's a very dry desert. But every time the United States has been trying to build it, the environmental lobby, funded by the fossil fuel industry, surprisingly, have been blocking it. So for the U.S. to build nuclear again, they need a waste depository to move the waste there so the industry can breathe again, right? South Africa doesn't have that problem. We have a waste depository in the Karoo. It's called Fulbert's. It's uh, 100 square kilometers. And that waste is theoretically infinite for South Africa's needs for the next centuries, few centuries, okay, um, in size. However, Kuburg's high-end waste is kept on site. The low-end waste is put there. So low-end waste is something like gloves sometimes. It's something like people's tools. There's a lot of mixed stuff in there. It's just like junk that you throw in there, right? High-end waste, of course, comes from the nuclear power plant, and that is uh, welded closed in what we call dry cast storage. So it's basically a gallon drum that they weld shut. And that thing weighs 200 tons, and nobody can steal it because 200 tons is quite heavy. The other thing to point out about it is waste runs at a neg negative interest rate. So South Africa, every few years, go to Parliament, and we do two scenarios. Do we treat the waste now or in the future? In other words, do we move it to fault pits now or in the future? And every time we've done it, we realize it's cheaper to kick the can down the road because the waste is decaying. It's got a half-life constant, okay? That decay constant approaches. And all you need to do with waste is put it in a safe location and leave it until it decays to its safety threshold. Even if that threshold might take 100 years, so what? It's just in the middle of nowhere. That's all you have to do with it. However, the term waste might even be misleading. Some people nowadays call it spent fuel because they still radioactive waste or radioactive material in that in that spent fuel and we can still use it for advanced fuels in reactors and that is a new economy they're talking about the the um, the fuel cycle now there's a few investors looking into that to say can't we use the decayed um, uranium or the plutonium that's been manufactured and create what we call mox fuel and the French have been doing that they've been mixing plutonium with uranium to put in their reactors that brings down the cost of electricity even more so there's an economy there in the waste economy if you will I've heard talk of something called a small modular reactor. What is that? 
Yeah, so it's basically just a smaller version of a nuclear reactor, but it's called modular because you build it in a factory and then you put it together like a Lego. That's the, that's the idea of modular. So as opposed to building it and pouring the concrete and the steel on the building site, it's all done in a factory and you just assemble it. And maybe you'll have to do some adaptation because nothing fits perfectly all the time. Now, South Africa was the first country in the world to develop what we call SMR, small modular reactor. It was called the Pebble Bed Reactor. And I'm not mistaken, I think it's 100 to 150 megawatts. Now, compared to Kuburg, which is 2 gigawatts, okay, it's 900 times 2. It's 1.8 gigawatts, I think. So it's a much smaller scale. And the idea with that was you can put it where it's necessary, like in a mine, for example. A mine uses a lot of electricity, but it's not the same as Kuburg. It's not a city. So um, that, that was the theory of it. So you would put it where it's located. Um, I'm all in favor of that. The only problem with them is the only commercial one at the moment is in China, which is a pebble-bait modular reactor like South Africa's. And it was done in collaboration with the University of Johannesburg. In Texas, they're doing the same thing. Now, small modular reactors, there's a lot of them. Rolls-Royce is uh, starting to build a few as well. They're just putting a submarine reactor on land because submarines are small modular reactors as well. This, this is a smaller scale one. Um, they've announced one today, I think it was. Um, the UK has said they're going to go into nuclear as well. Um, France has had a different form of one where they wanted to burn recycled fuel. Um, it was called Phoenix. And then Russia's got their own versions of it as well. And so does America. America now has the um, Department of Energy's Advanced Demonstration Projects, I believe it's called. And there's also pebble bed in there. There's also molten salt reactors. So that's sort of what I call generation four reactors. It's smaller scale and it's different types of application. There's a lot of different forms of them. Um, they're all great. Um, people would say you would need to for load shedding. So this is where I sort of have a disagreement because my argument is the pressure water reactor, a traditional one like Kuburg, is a known technology and it's standardized. Because if you're going to build a new small modular reactor, it's going to be the first or the second in the world. Where do you get spare parts? Right? Things of that sort. Whereas if you build another power station like Kuburg or even a Russian one, I, don't, I mean, I don't have a preference, you know there's a few of them in the world. So they established the supply chains. That's that's the difference between the engineers and the scientists. The scientists are all excited about advanced reactors. I'm also excited about them, but I'm cautious about going away, going with them fully, fully committed with them yet, because I'm asking myself, what about repairs and downtime and things like that, all these engineering problems. And that's why I'm more in favor of saying, let's just build a traditional one in South Africa. That allows us to get those 150 South Africans in Dubai that's building the South Korean one to come back home, get the skills back home, and then we can use that skill set as a basis to implement small modular reactors if they are ready in the next 10 years or so, because they are being demonstrated at the moment and the costs are coming down. But the costs are still at the point where as an engineer or an investor, I would say, I'm not sure yet. Do I take a risk or not a risk? Now, for an advanced country, you can take the risk any time because they've got money and fat in the system. South Africa needs electricity tomorrow for load shedding. And the best way to get electricity on the grid is build what works. Right. And that's why I'm saying I, I want to go for traditional pressure water reactor at the moment. But in the future, I would go for small, small modular reactors. It goes without saying that nuclear can enhance or amplify the sovereignty of a country and its energy independence, uh, which will by default then create more prosperity, etc., etc. If you look at countries, I suppose, like China, they're doing that. China and Russia is going full committed to nuclear. So is Iran, by the way, that likes to define it as sovereign. Iran's also building small modular reactors, actually. Um, so is France. 
France in 1973, following the oil shock, said we're going to build nuclear because America was using oil as leverage geopolitically. So France said we we can get uh, uranium from Mali, which is a former colony. We've got a relatively okay relationship with them. And they stockpiled a lot of uranium for their future needs. So, yeah, we, uh, energy is always geopolitical. Um, South Africa has a lot of uranium and a lot of thorium. Thorium is a different type of field than uranium, which we maybe talk a little bit about that now. Um, but generally yeah. speaking, South Africa can be energy sovereign. We also burn our own coal. And that's a very important thing because if there's a geopolitical shock in the system, you don't want another country to have leverage over you. You want to try and eliminate that. And one way of, of guaranteeing sovereignty is to have your own type of fuel. I would not go fully nuclear because maybe there's an issue of the supply chain. We're still split it between the coal and even the solar and the window. They have a mixed graph because then you can easily, you know, if, if there's an issue, it's, it's a smaller component of the economy. Maybe that's got an issue because things can also go wrong with nuclear. Let's be honest. As with any technology, that's how I would structure it for South Africa. But I would say one or two more pressure water reactors would be ideal for South Africa. Chat to me a little bit about the mining aspect of um, of uranium versus, say, coal. Well, if you mine uranium in South Africa, you mine it with gold. Okay, We've been mining it for a very long time. South Africa, when they built the atomic bombs in America, um, South Africa was integrated into the U.S. fuel cycle. Even the thorium came from South Africa. We have a thorium mine. We're one of the first countries in the world to have it. So the mining is, is well established. You buy uranium. I forgot the price now, but it's something like 8 to $10 for a kilogram or something. And that is, you know, enough for a very long time. So there's no issue with the mining. It's an established technology. Thorium is a little bit different um, because it's mined with rare earth. And there needs to be a bit of an adaptation to the mining process for thorium. But generally, uranium, which is what most reactors run on, is fine. I would like to see us also go over to thorium fuel. South Africa's got a mine on that. And the advantage of thorium is you can't make weapons with the degraded uh, material. It doesn't decay it, so and it's a lot more than uranium. But you need a little bit of uranium to kickstart the thorium reaction. It's not fizzle on its own. Um, so that, that is what I would like to see in the future. And many reactors, you can probably replace the uranium with thorium. So then you have two fills, and that gives you an advantage as well. If there's an issue of one supply chain, you've got the other one. Australia mines a lot of uranium they send into India. Australia doesn't even have its own uh, nuclear power. America's got a lot of this stuff. I mean, in Arizona, I believe there's a lot of abandoned uranium mines. They're just not mining it anymore because there's no demand for it. So it's very easy to establish this stuff. Fusion is when you split two hydrogen atoms, okay? And you get right. helium plus a neutron, okay? Right. That's what happens on the sun. And that is a that is a more advanced level, what we call fission. So fission, you split the atom, fusion, you fuse it. Fusion technology, South Africa had an experimental reactor in the 90s. Britain's got what they call the JET program. It's generally a torus. Uh, they call the tokamak. So it's got lots of magnets that can find the fusion reactor reaction. And the idea is that you spin the atoms very quick until the kinetic energy goes to a point where they fuse. I worked on the project here in France, which is a bigger scale. That's going to be the first attempt. But that's an experimental reactor to get out to industrial. It's going to take about 20, 30 years. Fusion is, is a nice technology for the future. What we're talking about here is fission. So splitting uranium, splitting thorium. Okay, So you must take into account you've got two fields, thorium and uranium. Uranium is naturally fissile. In other words, in its natural state, it wants to split it. It's almost radioactive all the time. Of course, you can enrich it to make it more radioactive. Thorium is not. It's got a heavy core, but it's not fissile on its own. So you need a little bit of uranium to kickstart the reaction and then splits. That's the difference between it. It's a different type of material, but it's also radioactive. It also has a chain reaction. It also is E equals MC squared. So it's just a different type of fuel. It's a material that can act as a fuel. The only difference is a lot more thorium in the world than is uranium. 
and um, uranium was traditionally chosen as the fuel because one, it's naturally fissile, and the second one, you can make weapons from it, weapons-grade uranium from it. And remember, nuclear came from the military first. With thorium, there's no military applications, really. And that is why I'm in favor of transitioning over to that type of field for the rest of Africa. And the South African pebble bed was a, they had like balls that was encapsulated in, I believe it was a silicon mix or something. You can put either uranium or thorium into that ball to make the reaction. So it's just a different type of field. It's like, you can say it's like one type of coal to another coal, if you, if you really want to compare it that way. Can nuclear be used for more daily applications? Let's I'm no, I'm no yeah. fan of electric cars, but let's just say now, could you power cars with nuclear? Uh, there has been car designs with nuclear. Um, but, you know, cars got the piston and thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit out of my league, to be honest, but it, it has been done. There's also been an airplane that flew on um, thorium, I believe, in the United States. They make uranium airplane and they had no shielding. They were just exposed to radioactivity and nobody died, surprisingly. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be done. But um, you need to do a little bit of engineering in that process. You can, of course, charge an electric car with electricity that's generated from it. Where I'm thinking of more about uh, the applications is if you take advanced reactors, say um, uh, paper weight reactors, they get to a much higher temperature. And you can use that heat directly for industrial applications to make steel and to make concrete in particular. And you can get the production cost down. So you can make cheaper steel and concrete. You don't have to make electricity and you need to use electricity for energy. You can just make heat. And that is the, the main advantage of it. Wait, now, so, hang on, hang on. So you're saying that you can, you can double up the power station. You can use it for something else. Yeah, you, you don't have to make electricity. You, you just make okay. heat. Like you can use you know, gas in your home, basically. You don't make electricity to make heat, first of all. You can make the same thing with thorium. The same with uranium. Um, if you take a concrete kiln, what's happening, they've got a fan that blows warm air in. There's no reason you can't make that warm air from thorium as opposed to coal at the moment. And the same with steel. You know, for steel, they burn coal. You can just use the, the heat can just come from, from a nuclear reactor. And that, because you see, when you make electricity at the moment, water is boiled to 300 degrees. And then that is turned into steam. And then the steam turns a turbine. And then the turbine is used for applications. But what I'm saying is don't have the water. Just use the heat directly for the industrial application. And there's some process in America now. There's BASF, which is a chemical company, is looking into that in Texas, actually, with the pebble bed modular reactor. So it's simpler to not make electricity sometimes. You just get heat directly. And that has always been the big question among renewables. Renewables might produce electricity, but we are not sure if they can produce industrial heat. Right? You can probably use thorium to make renewables. Okay, because at the moment in China, they're using coal. They're using the heat from coal. You can use that. The other thing which is interesting is what they talk about circular economy, which is essentially recycling. Recycling at this moment is not profitable because we don't have, it takes a lot of energy. But because nuclear is so energy dense, you can use that energy to recycle at an affordable rate and it might be cheaper than mining. It might be. I mean, it's, it's, it, the process still has to be established. So that's another application. The other applications is what we call uh, medical applications. Medical isotopes for cancer is being made. 10% of all medical isotopes in the world come from South Africa. We have two reactors. We don't have just Cuba. We have Safari as well, which is a medical reactor. It makes medical isotopes. It generates income for South Africa. So they are medical applications. And we know that you can use radiation to treat cancer. That is why it's not always dangerous. That's hormesis. Radiotherapists do that. So there's applications, right? Um, 
The other thing is currently uh, the fuel we use for, uh, um, for, for nuclear is solid state. So you've got a solid piece of, of um, uranium, basically, or thorium, and that is, is charging a reactor. You can also turn that into a liquid. So you can make a thorium salt. I think it's called thorium hexafluoride or uranium hexafluoride, something of that. I might get the chemical compound ready. So it's a salt that's got uranium or thorium in it. When you heat up a salt, it turns into a liquid. That's got heat. Now, when you do that, you increase the energy density even more. And that's what they call the molten salt reactor. And there was one built in Oak Ridge in America in the 1970s. And when the oil industry realized that they lobbied Jimmy Carter to shut it down. And the reason is the energy density is so much higher. It's something like a factor to 10 to 20 higher than oil. And from, a, uh, I think, one gram of salt would be the same as, as two tons of oil, just the energy ratio. So that amount of energy density still has not been exploited. And that is the next step. So the first step, in my view, is get pressure water reactors. Just do what is good. The second step is get things like the pebble bed, the commercial, the, the small modular reactors. They might still use water. They might use industrial wheat. And the third state is go from solid fuels to liquid fuels. Because if you have something in a liquid form, you have more surface temperature. You've got way more heat. And then you have even more industrial applications. Now, if you look at us through the lens of the Industrial Revolution, coal is what got us iron and concrete. And that's how we build roads and bridges. Coal did not get us to the moon. That was oil. This oil has a specific application for airplanes and for rockets. We didn't use coal. The guy wasn't putting coal in NASA to go to the moon or go to space, right? They were using oil. Now, if you go to even more denser form, which is liquid thorium, you've got way more applications. And we don't know what applications are going to come because we don't, haven't exploited that much energy in concentration yet. And that is why I'm saying the logic of the Industrial Revolution it all points towards nuclear. So then what has been the big stumbling block, the uh, block, the... Um... The green, the green lobby. I mean, how, how have they managed to be so successful in stopping all of this? Well, it's it's not just the green lobby. The green lobby is, is part of the political economy. They are definitely a role. They've been lobbying government. They've been pressuring. In California, they passed the laws in the 70s to not build any more nuclear reactors in California. The most advanced economy, arguably, in the world at the time. Australia, highly advanced society, they've lobbied the government to pass laws against building nuclear reactors. I mean, this is what we call Luddite, which is, you know, it's just an argument against the technology. It's completely absurd, but they've scared the hell out of people. Now, they one part of the puzzle. The other one is obviously the oil industry has always had a fear that if we exploit nuclear to that level that I'm talking about, especially the liquid form, the Middle East will be a wasteland. You don't need it anymore. All that investment is gone. So Saudi Aramco, the, the military industrial complex, and any other one is the military. Because uranium has military applications, the nuclear industry's inertia has always been towards some weapons because it came out of the military. And thorium can actually point the path of non-proliferation. We can enjoy the benefits of nuclear technology without the fear of the weapons. Also, the United States for 10 years recycled nuclear warheads coming from Russia. This is where I do give a lot of credit to George W. Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev. They signed an agreement to get rid of um, nuclear weapons. I think in a cold war, America had like 70,000 of these things. It's down to 3,000 today. And since then, America and Russia have been trading weapons and using it for civilian power. So even some of the energy America uses comes from recycled nuclear warheads, which is an amazing story if you think about it. So, you know, the, 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 the civilian applications of nuclear has got a ton of interests against it, aligned against it. And also the renewable lobby, which is relatively recent, 
is now a very rich lobby. Renewable spends more than oil and gas industry. They would do anything to get rid of the nuclear industry. I mean, I looked at the graph in Dubai. So Dubai, you know, they recently built that new reactor in the UAE. One reactor, no, it's one reactor, one power plant, which I think is four reactors, is going to provide 25% of Dubai's electricity. It's from one small area in the world, okay? That is more energy than Denmark and uh, I can't remember the other country. I think Denmark and Greece, one of these countries, added in 20 years from renewables. So a few reactors would put all of these guys out of business. So you, you've got just an incredible inertia against nuclear. And that comes with the propaganda. And it's interesting because you say, as you say, that it's actually the solution for climate. Yeah. You know, if you believe CO2 is an issue, but they obviously don't. Is nuclear beneficial or profitable for the private sector more than, say, the state sector? Or how does that part work? I mean, you're talking big yeah. money. This is part of the issue. So traditionally, nuclear came through utilities. The US was a bit of exception. They had private companies going into it, but every time the government had to bail it out. So the private sector has always said we can't get into it. Another reason is it's always been government pension money against government pension money. And that locked out all middlemen. The private sector was locked out of the deal. However, the private sector can invest into the fuels, which has always been a case. There are ways for them to come into. But if you talk about these big plants, that tends to be government money. Small modular reactors might change it. However, I'm very skeptical against people who say it can be fully privatized because given the proliferation concerns that any government will have, even if it's thorium, even if it's non-existent, government will always try to have some leverage. Now, I, I'm personally not against nationalization if done properly. France has a national utility, South Korea has one. They work, it's, it's quite affordable electricity. So, you know, there is an argument to be had to say, how far can you push deregulation because I'm not even convinced that that even the wind and solar stuff is free from government intervention. We're seeing now in Germany where Siemens' share price went down and the government's bailing them out again. Now, you can brag to be the entrepreneur making money out of wind farms, but the government is, is carrying your losses. So electricity is like infrastructure. It's like highways and bridges and stuff. There is always going to be a responsibility of the state or a collective. Maybe it's a cooperative of things. But you're right. The, the capital expenditure for these things is a 60-year investment. That's generally government money. I mean, if you take the Golden Gate Bridge in America, it was built in the 1930s. And I believe it was paid back only in the 1970s. Now, a private investor with a 15-year return would, would have a bridge collapsing every 15 years. Right? That would be a private, a good a performing asset. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge was paid back in the 70s. The debt was, was almost ignored in one states, but that allowed for Silicon Valley and all those things. So I'm always in favor of the government taking a responsibility in infrastructure. And what I would say is national utilities play a very good role if done properly. If they ran in the old days like NGOs where they don't make profit and they only recover their own costs. And that is how South Africa built Kuburg. That's how we built ESCOM. That's when ESCOM worked. When ESCOM was run private, it didn't work very well. So you, you need to start questioning whether, I'm not, you know, I'm not Julius Manema, but you need to start questioning whether nationalization is always bad. I was actually going to ask you about ESCOM, but I think you've, you've, you've given me your, your feedback. Well, I, I would say this on ESCOM, why ESCOM went bad, it's misunderstood. Um, ESCOM was forced into a position that no utility in the world would survive through government policy. Okay, ESCOM was forced to sell at a loss through NERSA. The national regulator did not exist in, under the apartheid regime. ESCOM back then could set its own tariff and recover its own cost. The government could set policy where to electrify, but it did not intervene. Then came 
the I think it was Minister Alec Irvin of Private Enterprises under Tom Mubeki. And he came with NERSA. He said it must be regulated to establish a price. And since then, it's been forcing ESCOM to sell at a loss. And to, at the same time, while it's selling at a loss, it was forced to supply electricity to people who could not pay it back. So that's why the debt accumulated. That's not ESCOM's fault, if you think of it. Yes, there might be corruption and bad employment, and I'm not neglecting those things. But that's a policy framework to destroy the nationalized utility. Okay, and, and that is what I'm, I'm highly skeptical of. Now, South Africa is saying we need to privatize, privatize infrastructure. My view is if you're going to do that with ESCOM, you need to be very careful because during the apartheid government, ESCOM was used to settle geopolitical disputes. It was a carrot and stick approach. We built even railways to Swaziland. We had agreements with Kabora Basa in Mozambique. They supply power one way, we supply water, things of that sort. Lesotho in South Africa has got an agreement. And if you're going to privatize it, all those geopolitical conflicts can reassert itself and you threaten the survival of the state. Now, if a government's under threat, what does it do? It did what France recently did. Private sector was threatening electricity to France. It renationalized everything. And you can actually force nationalization if you start threatening the government. And I, I make the point in um, energy. It's, it's one of my mentors told me energy. Governments are three priorities. Safety of supply is number one. Okay. No matter the cost, government will get electricity because they don't want to lose an election. The second one is cost. Okay. First, we have electricity. Then we try to bring that cost. And the third one is environmental concerns like climate. And if you put three or two before one, you go back to where you started. And South Africa is learning that lesson in a very painful way. You're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon. What is it that you see? Well, I, I see, uh, try and predict given what is happening at the moment. If you asked me this question a few months ago, I would say for nuclear, it's a very dim future except for a few countries. But within the last month, Sweden has recommitted to nuclear. Canada has recommitted to nuclear. Ontario and Alberta. France has recommitted to nuclear. I, I was thinking France's nuclear is, is pathetic. It's now recommitting. Okay. India and France signed a cooperative agreement. Egypt is building nuclear. Uganda is building it. Kenya is building it. So if these countries can show us how to do it, I hope South Africa wakes up. Um, so I'm not certain about South Africa's future. I'd like to point your listeners to the article I wrote with a few colleagues in the nuclear industry to make the argument for nuclear. It's on my Substack account. It's a few arguments where I show the cost, the financing options, how everything works. It's public knowledge now. I'm sharing my knowledge as an engineer for free. Usually I get paid for this. And I would like for South Africans to change the nuclear debate. So if I can have an optimistic future, it will be to see one or two more nuclear power stations in South Africa after the next election or even before that. Where does the funding for those projects come from? Okay, so nuclear power stations is funded through what we call vendor financing. Vendor financing means the guy who builds it brings his own financing. We might pay 15% of that, which is completely affordable for South Africa. It might even be government pension money. I have no issue investing pension money in sensible investments. <laughs> okay, the money is very difficult to steal because of the way the contracts work and international law that applies. So that's a good application of government money. Um, it will be the guy building it. So South Korea or Russia or China, whichever one we choose, or even France, will have to bring the money. And in the contractual agreements must be very clear. If they are late or if something goes wrong, they pay for it. Okay, and that is how the contracts will work. And that law must be enforced from day one. It's just how you manage it properly. Um, so it can be done. The Chinese are very keen on this developmental model. They bring the wallet as they develop. And there's no reason why we should be scared of China, Russia, or South Korea, or even America, if they can make a better deal. I've got no issue. I've got no, no prejudice against any country. 
Hugo, you can't say China these days. Everybody hates China. The moment you say China, everybody falls apart and melts. Yes, but China has got the most affordable nuclear power at the moment, and it's the most forward-looking country of nuclear. They're already investigating molten uh, uh, fuels, uh, uh, molten thorium and molten uranium in their reactors. China might be the first country to apply these things on an industrial scale. Let's not alienate people with expertise. That's utterly stupid. Okay, let's mm. make friends of China and America. We are non-aligned country. We don't want, it's not our fight. Let's face it. And we, we're just small to matter anyways in the world. Let's just play nice, trade with the Chinese, trade with the Americans, and we can do what the Indians do, lock them into negotiations with each other. India is in a military alliance with the US and a trade alliance with China. Best thing for South Africa. Let's do something similar. <laughs> All right. How can I follow you? Um, Substack. I'm on Twitter. It's uh, H. Kruger, T-J-I-E, Hawkrierki. It's also on uh, Kriarki at Substack.com. Hugo Kruger, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.